welcome if it's your first time. Glad that you're here. Joined us. Uh, going on maybe. Yes. Done some. All right. Uh, loud enough to where you can hear me. Hopefully, it won't be too annoying. Of a, uh, a sermon series on uh, the Holy Spirit, and we're kind of nearing the end of that. Uh, so we're starting to think through topics for next semester. One of the ones that I have had the idea for, and you guys will kind of tell me as a church whether you think it's a great idea or if you have specific things that you uh, want to see us do, is Ian Proven, some, one of the speakers that's come to our winter camp before, uh, wrote a book recently called Reformation and the Right Reading of Scripture. I haven't read it yet. Sounds super interesting. It's 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. Am I right? Woo! Yeah! Yeah! I know a lot of you guys are having Reformation parties left and right, and so... Uh, I know you already know that, so I'm not uh, telling you anything new, but I figured next semester we might actually uh, talk kind of the highlights of the Reformation period, but particularly with an emphasis on, some of you like I just can't even see, you're just like disappeared behind a giant pillar, right? Um, I'm going to fix that maybe. Um, anyway, so uh, it's like the ideal texting during the sermon spot, right? It's like so perfect. No one will ever call you out. Right? Yeah. It's on, yeah. Oh, yeah. No wonder Tabby's right there. There's no surprise there. Um, probably got her laptop out doing some work, you know. No, it's okay. You know, we'll let her we'll keep it. Um, so uh, we would do a particular emphasis on uh, sort of uh, how to read the scripture really kind of at the basic level and maybe even, uh, you know, talk through some of the kind of errors or even approaches that have gone uh, through the Reformation period of the last 500 years. So just be thinking about that uh, as a possible topic for next semester. Regardless of what our topic is, I really want to really push the envelope more than we have uh, on making our worship interactive and participative. I'm going to talk a lot about that today in specific. And so please, if you haven't signed up on that sign-up sheet that's up at the table, you should probably pass that around, but we're not quite yet there. Uh, and this is just an opportunity for you to be engaged in our worship in a way that you've pre-planned something, thought about something, whether that's artwork or a song. Maybe today's a great day for us to just like sing spirit-filled songs that we make up on the spot uh, because we have no lyrics. Uh, so maybe we just, some of you are like terrified. Your faces are just like the thought of that even. Um, but we've got to get, uh, I think, more creative in our uh, worship time together if we really want to see the Spirit work among us in ways that aren't limited to me and a few other people coming up here. And so, uh, like I said, regardless of our sermon topic next semester, we really want to push the envelope more in our worship time together. And I think this is a wonderful and a beautiful place to do that. Uh, and so, yeah, great. Uh, also, remember that we have our class on Sunday mornings. We had our second class this morning. Uh, we meet at 930 uh, this morning we met in the back of pickup trucks because we're cool like that, and uh, probably do that next week too. And um, so uh, the first two topics we've done, the history and the theology of Pentecostalism, this next week we're going to be doing Pentecostalism in the black church, Pentecostalism in the global church is the week after that, and then what to make of it, you know, sort of where do we go from here as a church. And those have been really uh, well-attended classes, and they've been, I think, fun, although I'm a little bit biased. Uh, so if you're interested, we haven't really been doing recordings. I'm sorry, I don't really know how to make that work. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, if you're interested, certainly you can kind of pick up at any time with us. All right, and that's 930, and we meet uh, over there in the uh, parking lot. Um, I want to say a prayer for uh, Kurt's uh, mother. Uh, many of you see Kurt Lesker's not here. Uh, she had a, I always, we always know how to say quadruple bypass. Triple bypass. That's not near as hard as I thought. Um, and uh, it, it, things went well and seemed to be on, uh, uh, she's healing. And so I just want to say a prayer for them uh, as the, um, they kind of come uh, figuring out how to do the whole where to live and what to do and all that good stuff. And then we'll enter into uh, the time of sermon. Lord God, thank you so much for the wonderful blessing it is to have the rose with us. So many things in this church that just wouldn't get done. Uh, and so many people that... Uh, uh, wouldn't know you if we didn't have your presence here. Thank you for all of the adults that have chosen to come to be uh, with us, whether that's people who've graduated, people who've been around for quite a while with lots of experience, that they would be a part of a young college church like this. Uh, it just speaks volumes. And uh, Lord, we just ask that we 
that you would continue to teach us through them. I pray specifically right now for Kurt and his mom that you would heal her more quickly than they expected, that your power would be seen in obvious ways that would glorify you, uh, that you would comfort them and uh, you know, just move in very noticeable ways, God, that give you glory. We just thank you and ask that uh, you would speak to us now through your spirit. Amen. Okay, uh, so I've given you the general disclaimer the last few weeks that I have no idea what I'm talking about. I just want to make sure that that still applies to this sermon um, because it really is true, guys. I, I don't just say that in jest. Um, even though I have a confident way of presenting things, I really kind of have no idea what I'm talking about uh, with these last couple topics. Mostly because so many people have said so many things and I've studied so many things but don't exactly know where I stand because I haven't experienced many of those things. So while they exist up in my head as really interesting tidbits of information and knowledge, uh, I'm not so sure I have a lot to speak of in regard to experience. And you know, a lot of us get like that a lot with a lot of different issues. We can talk all day long about how this works and that works, but then we really kind of notice we have a failure to have had experiences along those lines. And so our knowledge of the topic is shallow at best. So that is why I want to continue to pursue experience as a church in these areas uh, so that we can kind of get some experience under our belt, really know what this ought to look like. I think we're in a really neat and exciting time, both in global history, uh, in the history of our nation, uh, where religion is moving. Some people tend to see it as, you know, kind of a negative thing that people are leaving the church. But I think what follows people leaving the mainstream church often can easily turn into the spirit working and bringing people back to a different kind of church, one that was sort of long time coming. And so I want to be on the edge of that. And whatever the spirit wants to do in this community, wants to do with our church, uh, no matter how shameful or weird or strange that may be, uh, I want to get on board with that. And so as a church, hopefully you're on board with that too. There are plenty of other churches around that uh, maybe aren't, that's not the vision or mission that God has given them. Uh, and you're welcome to go there because that would be a great place if that's where you've been called to. But for, for here, we're going to do some things. We're going to experiment. We're going to try to move ourselves out of the normal ways of doing things so that we can hopefully get, uh, get a sense of where the spirit is moving and, and what he wants to do with our church in particular. So this topic today is worshiping in the spirit, and uh, there's so much that uh, we could say about, uh, you know, the history of this idea, and uh, unfortunately, you know, I, I realize that some of these sermon topics have been a little bit heady and theological, particularly if you don't know much about the history of Pentecostalism. And so without going too much into Pentecostalism, uh, its history, I do want to say that um, a lot of the issues that we have today with thinking about Pentecostalism uh, are issues that Pentecostals have had themselves with thinking about Pentecostalism. It's very easy for us to reduce ideas into this group of people thinks this one homogenous way. But Pentecostals have been talking about a lot of Pentecostal theology for the last 150 years and have had issues with the same things many of us who grew up non-Pentecostal or Pentecostal have had ourselves. And, uh, and so it's important to recognize that it's not like we're just looking in and we've got the third party unbiased perspective, but many uh, uh, of the folks who've been a part of the Pentecostal movement have really been very critical of their own ways of thinking and doing things. I will say too, to kind of follow on to my conversation about or, or statement about the church and where it's going, there's one thing that's really not debatable, and that's that the Pentecostal church is growing quicker than any other segment of Christianity. And not just in America, but growing leaps and bounds south of the equator. Uh, in some estimates, almost 500 million people are Pentecostals today. Uh, that's huge, that's a huge number. Uh, and Pentecostalism is really changing the way not only Pentecostals think, but non-Pentecostals and how they think about the world through charismatic renewals and revivals and movements, particularly in the Latin American uh, world and in the Catholic church. And so I think we ought to be okay with hearing what our Pentecostal brothers and sisters are saying about their experiences and about their theology while recognizing that they, like us, have a whole lot of traditions that when we look at, we're like, what? Why do you do that? That's super strange. Just like when you have in-laws or you have a good friend and you meet their family for the first time, you wonder, how did they survive? <laughs> that world is fundamentally different from my world and so must be wrong. 
So we've got to be okay with learning some of these things and trying to implement them, experience them as God's gift to us as the unified Christian church uh, without laying uh, our stake and our theology and our ground and being resistant of those things. So um, I, I want to just sort of say a few things here and I have three points and I don't normally do these kind of acronym type things, but I tried really hard this morning uh, to do this. You ready? We have got to hack up our worship services. My wife is already rolling her eyes. Doesn't matter to me because I'm going with it. We have got to hack up our worship services, okay? I'm not going to spell hack with a K because then I'd have to have four points and we'd be here for way too long. So I'm just going to spell it with H-A-C, okay? Whatever. We need a more holistic approach to our worship services. We need to be aware of the Spirit's presence in our worship services, and we need to be much more creative. Uh, So I want to talk through those three points, Uh, holistic, aware, and creative, uh, that will uh, give us the ability to hack up our worship services, okay? Maybe we'll lose that, like, next week. Who cares? But, you know, who knows? Maybe two years from now, it'll be the thing that, you know, everyone would have known me for. I'll write a whole book, you know, hacking up worship. People will call me the hacker. (laughs) All right. Get a shirt. No, okay. Um, So, uh, you know, almost every revival movement, starting with Jesus's revival movement and bringing himself here, was about a number of things that are pretty predictable throughout the ages. Number one, it's about taking dry, unorthodox, or excuse me, dry, orthodox faith and reinvigorating it to make it practical and applicable to life. There's nothing wrong with orthodox faith uh, in terms of having a right belief or a right understanding of the world, but it comes at the expense often of people being able to do anything in life practically, because it's always easier to have 17 statements of doctrine than it is to try to live out these doctrines in a really complex gray area type world called our lives. So we can admit to having 10 or 15 or 20 or whatever. I had an interview once, and uh, it was a really lucrative job. I was going to get to travel. Um, I'd get to be starting some grad student ministries all around the country. And they had a theological statement. And they said, you know, well, we'll comment kind of where you're at on these uh, these 17, I think it was 17 points of, uh, of our theological doctrine. Man, I prayed about it, I thought about it, I'm rebellious, I'm a jerk, so my first inclination was to just be like, either pretend like you agree, or just like rip every single one of them apart. And what I did was somewhere in the middle of that, um, but a lot of people told me, if you send this into them, they will not hire you for the job. And so I had to kind of decide, okay, do I want this job at the expense of not being honest about my beliefs and doctrines, which weren't near as precise and and comprehensive i won't say as thoughtful as theirs or do i and that's really what i'm going to be doing as a minister is going around starting grad ministries teaching people doctrine or do i just say well we'll work this out and um i had no other prospects at the time i had no idea what i was going to do and i just went with what i felt like god was telling me to do which is to kind of that middle ground between these are all crazy and who knows what to believe on these and you know not putting up too much of a fight well, needless to say, I didn't get the job, even though I will say they came back a year later and asked me again. Um, which my question was like, do you think I've changed? Um, his first response was hopefully, and I was like, no. And anyway, they offered me the job, but I didn't take it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. The point is that uh, it was it'd been very easy for me to simply acquiesce to this list of ideas, these orthodox ideas, and then to practice very differently in my faith. A lot of us do this. But that begs the question, uh, are we really living out our faith in that sense Uh, from the perspective of actually trying to apply those things that we know to be true? Or do we just kind of have these high and lofty ideas about what should be true and we completely have grown comfortable disconnecting those beliefs to anything that we do in life? And so any revival movement that's come through the last couple thousand years of Christianity have always been re-emphasizing the life part and de-emphasizing the importance of orthodoxy. 
okay? That's really what Jesus was doing. He was coming and challenging the orthodoxy of the day and pulling in a whole lot of people. And along with that generally comes some sense of a rediscovery of what it means to really be a holy or pure person. Um, and, uh, and this is primarily what brings about the Pentecostal movement, okay, in the 19th century. Now, the Pentecostal movement has its roots in the holiness movement, okay, in America, which was kind of a branch of Methodism, which was kind of a branch of pietism. <laughs> I won't keep going. Um, but pietism was, you know, a global movement of people reacting to the orthodoxy of the Reformed and the Lutheran church. They were tired of how institutional it had become since Luther. And they felt like the church had no real life or vitality to it anymore. And they needed to start over and thinking through the basics of what does it mean to be a person who's just holy, devoted to God. And out of that holiness movement, you know, here comes the Pentecostal movement, which is it's really the most modern day, along with a number of other denominations of the last hundred years, uh, that revival, that get back to the basics of what does it mean uh, to really live out the gospel of Christ. And those are really important movements because they're necessary, they happen over and over again, and they balance out this sort of particular Western issue where we like to get things stuck in our head, but then they never really get translated into what we do. I don't know, college, kind of a good example of that. My students have long stopped expecting to learn anything relevant to their life in college. So when I gave a financial seminar the other day, asked them if they wanted it, they were all amazed. And it was great and probably our only good class, but it has nothing to do with sociology, so to speak. But we've just grown accustomed to those two worlds. And unfortunately, uh, that's not okay when it comes to uh, our faith in Christ. So what really started off as a, a movement back towards bringing religion to the people, and I'll make one other statement with this, is usually when things become orthodox in the West, they become for rich people, for educated people, and the general public gets left behind. You certainly see that in Jesus' day, but you certainly saw this with uh, Lutheran and, uh, and reform folks in the 17th and 18th century. These churches easily got on board with the wealthy and educated in society and left the bottom part of society to sort of fend for themselves. And so the often, uh, you know, cited critique of new revival movements is that it's all for a bunch of kind of dumb, uneducated people. But unfortunately, probably to shame the wise and to do from those who no one expected anything to be done, change whole worlds, God often uses people in our society who we least expect to accomplish his purposes. And it's true, when you really look back to the early days of Pentecostalism, you see a lot of uneducated, pretty just normal people. Now that's changed radically over the last hundred years. But that should really make us very careful and cautious about seeing faith as something that we can only have as a result of some really good education or in, in a time period where we're successful and healthy and wealthy and all of these other things that we tend to think of. Some would argue that's the exact opposite uh, of how it ought to work. Now, I'm not making a case for, you know, religion is only important in for uneducated and poor folk. I think people overblow that in Jesus's ministry. Probably as much as there was a middle class in Jesus's time, that's mostly who he spent time with. But like most societies of the day, there's kind of not such a thing. There's really just sort of the bottom and the top. And people who you call middle class are just like working class, slightly above the people at the bottom. But I think that's really an important note. A lot of Pentecostalism and the ideas that they had started with people who were just regular folks trying to figure out how to do faith. And one of the real hallmarks of Pentecostalism at the beginning was this sort of expressive, free, human worship. It wasn't liturgy. It wasn't reading off of some prepackaged, every day is planned, let's make sure that, you know, we say the exact right words and so many Hail Marys and, you know, have our worship exactly like this. It was free-flowing just like human lives are free-flowing. And it was one of the really neat things that drew people to the Pentecostal 
atmosphere. We tend to think people were probably drawn because of miracles and speaking in tongues, and no doubt people wanted to see that freak show. But probably more than any of that, the fact that people were freed to just be human, think, to feel, to be in awe of God, to be, you know, uh, calm before God, that there was no expected way of doing this, drew a whole lot of people into the fold of seeing worship as applicable to them again. And that's pretty cool. I like that a lot. I think that's really, really important. So Ephesians 5, 19, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. I want to read both of these. I actually don't have a Bible with me because normally I use my phone. My phone is being passed around, taking all of your money right now. Um, so maybe just two different people want to read those, those scriptures. Ephesians 5, 19. Why don't you read that one, Austin? And then 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Maybe you will remember these verses, but I kind of want to pick them apart, even though I don't have them written down here. I'll just have to remember them. Uh, and uh, by pick them apart, I certainly don't mean criticize them. I mean sort of flesh them out. That's a better word. Uh, to try to kind of you know, frame what I think what worshiping in the spirit ought to mean in our day and age. Yeah, sure. That's always good. Full sentences. Let's do it. You have a lot there in just such a small space. The first part of it is that he's talking very much about the seat of our emotions and our will. And this idea that worship should be this primarily intellectual or thoughtful exercise is certainly represented in this verse, and yet he's emphasizing the ideas that these things ought to come and overflow from our heart. Um, you know, it, worship is often kind of struck an extreme tone. Uh, we're either completely reserved and expressionless and supposedly only using our brains, or we're just like all over the place crazy, apparently like diarrhea of the emotions, okay? And it doesn't really seem like we do a very good job of kind of meeting some more normal human behavior, which is a little bit between. And some would argue maybe we ought not you know, hit some moderate level of human behavior? Should human behavior be the, the litmus test, the baseline for this? Or should we all be, I've heard this said so many times, if you go to a football game and, you know, you're really you're excited, you should be just as excited in church. What, is, what, do you, what do you want people to do? You'll be like, yeah! This, you know, bad call, Jesus! I mean, that's just a real strange way of thinking. And what if you go to games like me and you just are literally so amazed by them and you, I don't go very often. I'm just sitting there like a statue. I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to do anything. I just want to watch. But I'm not vocal at all. My mom's the vocal one. She goes crazy at games. Don't ever go to a game with my mom. She will embarrass you. You want to wear a hat and kind of like one of those like shade hat kind of things because she will be yelling and people will be like, that's what's wrong with that lady. She's too excited. Um, so... You know, that kind of is a question in and of itself is what, what, what is this baseline of how we ought to be expressing uh, our worship to God? Some of us are expressive, some of us aren't. Does that mean that the expressive people are naturally better at worship? Does that mean they ought to be a little bit, you know, uh, pared back and kind of still? And those non-expressive expressive people ought to be really excited. Some people talk about, you know, we ought to have awe and reverence and weeping and repentance when we come to the church, as if we sort of just see God immediately. I don't know about you guys, but it takes me a little while to feel or experience God's presence when I'm in a church place. Most of it, I just see a bunch of you that need things from me uh, and that I've got to talk to. And uh, there's not really a whole lot of awe and repentance, maybe crying if it's the sixth person that's asked me to work on their car this afternoon. I know I'm not going to sleep, but that's a different kind of weeping. So... What exactly is the expectation or baseline we ought to have in our expression is really kind of like, who knows? I don't know. But sometimes when we just sort of fall into it, this is the way it ought to be, or we have some expectation, uh, expectation, ex expectation of how it ought to be, 
I, I question where those expectations come from. The passage itself is talking about psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And a lot of us probably don't have a sense of what the heck spiritual songs means. Well, first of all, psalms are very expressive. They're written out. They're definitely mentioning both the psalms of David and the psalms that people were writing in their day and age. Poetic, uh, you know, filled with imagery. The hymns, which tended to be really theological statements of how we ought to treat each other and who God is. These were primarily kind of intellectual, uh, you know, type tools. The spiritual songs thing is pretty interesting because as near as we can tell, <laughs> and this is so strange actually, and if we actually did this, probably more of us would laugh uh, than we would do anything else, is people were just kind of creating songs on the spot and singing them. Um, and they were spirit-led, spontaneous, and an expression of whatever it is they were thinking or feeling uh, and dealing with, and they were just singing them. And they'd be small, they would be, re- you know, you could repeat them, and they would just sort of emerge. Can you, I can't imagine it. I, I'm, I mean, maybe some of you uh, who like are good, good at songwriting, but some of those songs might just be super strange. I don't know. And maybe that's a part of what it should be. But could you imagine coming to church and having a segment where, all right, well, here's our makeup song section, where you're just going to make up a song as you go, and people are going to repeat it. That's what the early church did. What, I don't know why we can't do that. Is the time change so different? Uh, ha, is it that, that that's, they really were kind of like really in need of entertainment? <laughs> they didn't have t- you know, movies and TV, and so their expectation of entertainment was lower than ours. So just anybody singing was like, all right, this is good. I really like this. You know, when we get up and we're singing, you know, we've got people who are Simon Cowell back there. Oh, off tone. Off tone, you know. Terrible singer. Uh, I don't know. I really don't know. But I'm just going to tell you, that's one of the things that they practiced a lot in their uh, uh, worship time together. It was just spontaneous songs, okay? Uh, in addition to the hymns that they had already had uh, memorized. What does that look like? I'm not even going to that for now. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. So again, there we have kind of two, I think, really good ideas uh, beyond just the list of things that are certainly approving or approvable at a worship service. This isn't an exhaustive list at all. But the idea is that we're supposed to be building up the body. And one of the things I think I've noticed with a lot of our worship songs is they've got one dimension to them. They're like love songs written to God. But one of the things I felt like Pentecostals did a really good job of, from what I understand, and particularly in their history, is they wrote songs that were much more two-dimensional, meaning that they were just as much about the ethics of how we ought to live and treat each other than they were about this one-dimensional love relationship between them and God. I don't know, again, what that looks like when we're starting to sing songs that are ultimately encouraging us to be a certain way to each other. We've got songs that have decent imagery and things like that, but we've lost this sort of ethical sense of singing in our worship. It's somehow we've separated ethics from worship. Worship is just about us loving on God like God doesn't care about how we treat people. Oh, oops, I don't think so. That's not right. We'll wait for the sermon to hear about ethics. Uh, And so our singing then becomes kind of like out there, and we don't really connect to it always because unless we're feeling really you know, excited about our love relationship with God, we're not really singing about how we ought to treat each other and what we ought to do in the church. Um, And so, you know, we kind of divorce those two. But, you know, that's not what he was talking about. It was for the building up of the body. And then the big thing, which still I've yet to experience in any church that I've been a part of, is everybody has the expectation to come with something. Now, were their churches significantly smaller than our churches? Yeah, absolutely. And would it take us two days to get through what all of us had if we had something prepared? Yeah, and it would be like my worst two days ever, okay? Um, not that I don't like all of you, but the idea of two-day-long church, whoa. It's one of the things I cannot get on board with Pentecostals, man. They go for church like all day. I'm like, oh, it's hitting 45 minutes. We need to get out of here. And today I don't have my clock or uh, you know my phone, so I'm not for sure how long we're going to go. Uh, but uh, you know, we'll see. But then on the flip side, I have a sense of, I know kind of what they're talking about. And that's that it usually takes a long time for us to really get in the zone and get aware of God's presence. And so no wonder it's taken so long, not to mention that, but oh my gosh, what if people actually enjoyed staying there a couple hours longer? 
because they walked away with a sense of having heard what God was doing in people's lives. It's kind of like what we talked about if we could like somehow get it up on the board, you know, without you knowing. And it was really engaging and it was really pulled you in and it really made you feel encouraged and challenged and a part of something much bigger than yourself. Um, so I, I kind of understand how in that kind of setting, you know, you could, you could meet for, for a little bit of a longer time. Well, let me kind of mention these three points to you real quick, and then I'll be done. And I just want us to think about these. I want each one of you to really think about these, because I want to figure out how to do this in our times together. And I think at this point, because, again, lack of experience, I have a sense that these things are possible and, and should be, but I don't, I have vague notions of them and not exactly for sure what that ought to look like. And so I think we're going to have to decide some of those things together, but I'm definitely excited about it. If nothing else, because I, I'm not going to lie to you guys, I've said this before, but for me, church always growing up was boring. It was never exciting, never interesting. Even when I got to Northeast, and you know, I didn't do, I mean, I kind of had this stage in my teen years where we didn't really go or go consistently, didn't really consider myself a Christian. Uh, but when Northeast started, still was pretty boring to me. You know, I liked sermons at least more than songs because then I could be on my phone or doing something else. But songs were just like this painful, like, you know, pr procession of words that I didn't really agree with or understand. <laughs> uh, and some of you are looking at me like super judgmental, okay? Well, you know what? I'm going to find stuff about you that's wrong, all right? <laughs> but I never grew up with this sort of sense of church being this really sacred, uh, important, and really exciting or meaningful time for me. Some people did. You talk to Leslie about church, she gets giddy about it. She just has this experience growing up. But I'm going to venture guess as to say that my experience as a quasi-millennial, because I'm not always ready to take on that label, and I'm kind of on the line, so I get to choose between Gen X and millennial. Gen X when I want, millennial when I want. Um, most millennials probably agree with me, all right? And so we're all better than Leslie. Uh, no, just kidding. <laughs> we all need Leslie uh, to reinvigorate our sense of church. But guys, the answer for reinvigorating and getting a sense of a God's presence in our worship service is not to just continue on as normal. It's to figure out how to rethink this, rethink it for our culture, rethink it for how it ought to be, uh, challenge ourselves to appreciate uh, it more in ways that, that aren't just let's make it how we want it and you know nonstop videos and humor, but um, how it ought to be in ways that really do uh, make it meaningful. And we have the opportunity to do that. There's nothing stopping us. Guys, we don't have some board above us that's saying, here's how you ought to do this. Here's how we ought to do it. You just got me and Leslie and Kurt, and we're like, okay, let's do it, all right? And so there's no uh, you know, limit to, to what we can do in terms of really following the Spirit in our worship services. And I hope that you will think through that with me because uh, it's increasingly becoming an issue in our society to, uh, to really think back through this, to make sure that people are really getting a sense of God's presence through his people and not just a show or uh, uh, an empty routine. So holistic, what does that mean? Well, it, I think it means that we experience the, the range of human emotions uh, in ways that are kind of common to our humanity. Um, that yeah, sometimes I'm gonna come to worship and I'm gonna cry, and sometimes I'm gonna come and I'm just gonna kind of be sitting thinking. On my face, I might not be singing, but the, you know, things are still happening within me, that there's an expectation that the person next to me might be dancing and doing strange things, and I might be doing absolutely nothing, and I'm not gonna feel pressured to do it because they are. Not to say that there's nothing wrong with joining in with a fervor and with people being excited about something. That's great, because that's an expression of just being a part of the community. But the idea that there's got to be some way of doing things, you know, and no, I mean, I was in a, ch a church where I was raising my hand, and I was, you know, uh, I think the guy next to me, he went, he left and went to the bathroom. This was when I was early on in my faith, and... Um, and he came back and he says, hey, you know, the usher just kind of needs to know how to help me out here. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I mean, okay, they have that, and I'm, they maybe have a theological basis for it, and I respect that. I'm in their church. But for us as a church, we ought to be very careful about having standards that people ought to feel like they've got to subscribe to. Because that's not human. I mean, you don't go into a relationship with someone, and you're like, okay, here are all the things you ought to do to make me comfortable. Um, 
And if you do any of these outside of that, I'm probably not going to be able to be your friend. Well, actually, we do do that, but um, we got to get over it. And, and so we've got to be in a place where people can respond in human ways, which uh, are all over the map. If we believe that God you know, has created us in that way, we've got to be open to, to those things. Now, that is, again, not to say that we're, our major goal in coming here is to be comfortable. I think the more you have faith in God, the more you ought to pressure yourself to get outside of that self-determination that says, I'm only gonna experience God if he manifests himself in these ways. But as you become more mature, you experience the diversity of God's character in ways that involve jumping up and down and singing stuff and being still and thinking and all of these other things. And that that's not a guilty thing, like we ought to come and we have to you know, check off these lists of appropriate worship styles but that we're aware that God is going to work in a variety of ways that, that kind of catch up with our human, um, you know, our, who we are and who he's created us to be. And I'm not saying that we really necessarily do that. I think we're probably fine with that. People are pretty okay. You know, you won't get a stink eye if you, you know, start. Do people really sign language things when they're, or is it, is it sort of like glossolalia? It's just ecstatic hand movement. Is it, re- is it both? Okay, y'all you like are really knowledgeable about this, you know, that's exciting. I just never knew, I didn't, people doing sign language, I'm like, so is this an example of ecstatic sign language? Like, are they, is it a real language? Is it heavenly sign language? I, I just never really knew, now I know. Not that I really know, because you basically said both ways, so that actually doesn't answer my question at all. Um, second is, and I think this is probably where most of us, and particularly us millennials, ought to be challenging ourselves to be aware of what God is doing. If there's one thing you have to believe about a worship service, and believe me, this takes a lot for me to believe, it's that the Spirit of God is among us doing things for the benefit of the community. And I'm not talking about just that whole where two people are gathered, the Spirit is here. I'm talking about all of Paul's directives to the corporate community had the the power of the Spirit stamped upon them. When he was talking about the corporate gathering, he was always talking about the Spirit manifesting himself in ways that were seen, unseen, powerful, mundane, but that benefited the community of God. And I think when we come together, that is one of the hardest things for us to do is be aware of that. And the awareness maybe should come from a longer service. Maybe it takes us longer to be aware of that. I don't even know exactly what that means. Does that mean that I like stop and take 10 seconds and I'm like, Spirit, you're here, Spirit, you're here, Spirit, you're here. Does that mean I just go about my normal business and I'm doing things sort of unknowingly that, you know, I know God would want me to do, being kind to people, talking to people. You know, that whole awareness thing is a little bit of a tricky subject. And I'm not always completely for sure uh, what that means. I'll tell you one thing that's helped me in the past, although I have no idea if this is going to help you, but there's this guy named George Herbert Mead, okay, old dude, any of you psychology people like to experiment on dogs, like everyone did back then, um, and he kind of had this really crazy idea that really broke sociology into two, and it was that he believed that most of us only did things out of what he called the I, which was basically how animals acted. And the I was a part of us that, that, that focused on what we were doing at any given time. And we would exchange symbols with people, we would determine people's intentions, but we were focused on the I of what I was doing at any given time. Well, Mead said humans actually have this really distinct advantage over animals, and that's that they have the ability, if they choose to use it, to consider themselves in the third person as the me. And anytime you think about doing something in the past or doing something in the future, you have the ability to do what only humans have the ability to do. Animals just can't do that. They can be conditioned to recognize certain symbols, but they can't ever think of themselves in the third person. And this is my best attempt at trying in my very intellectual way of understanding what it means to be aware of the spirit, is to be aware of not just what I'm doing at any given time, the motions, the activities, whatever, the being in the moment kind of thing, but to really be able to put myself in sort of this third party position and and see, okay, where am I going? Where have I been? Where is the spirit working and using me to do things um, rather just than just kind of getting caught up in the moment? Now that might help you. That may be like, what did he just say? I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna listen to this recording. 
I'm going to listen to it 20 times. It still doesn't make any sense to me, okay? So that's fine. I'm not telling you to use it. I'm just saying that can be really helpful for me because I can find myself just getting caught up in moments uh, and the whole world is seen through my eyes. Here's another way of seeing this. As you develop as a, as a person, when you're young, you look at the world primarily and only from your own eyes. Other people don't even exist. The only people that exist are from who you see at any given time. And then gradually as you develop, you begin to see, wait a second, that person actually exists even when I don't see him. That's crazy. Now, it's probably not a childhood like revelation of that, um, but it does happen. To me, that's the I and the me. It's a recognition, not just here I am worshiping, I like this, this is good, I'm bored, I need to go do this. I am here, a part of something big, something going on, and I'm the me. I'm seeing myself sort of outside of my body, part of something much bigger. Okay, I'm going to stop talking because, you know, get into some really weird stuff into my brain. So, I think the other thing is uh, we ought to re- uh, incorporate the idea of worship as being an ethical thing that we do. Guys, go back and look at the word worship and see how many times Paul is talking about worship in the context of doing the stuff that God wants us to do ethically. And what I mean by ethically is really, in a sense, the one another command. It's just it. That there's no worship apart from how we treat each other, one another, how we think about each other, how we see each other. Whether that's in the midst of worship, whether it's in between the songs, after, before, all of that is worship. And if you go back and just do a quick part, a study of what worship is, it's never really divorced from those ethical guidelines we get of one another. Not only should we be doing things in worship that are really about one another, but we ought to be singing songs that are directed at how we treat each other, one another. And it's, 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 they're just weird to sing. I don't know of any that are really, uh, we are one in the thing. Okay, I was just making a joke. Um, that may be an example of it. But even if we don't, if we we're singing those songs and don't realize it, we ought to be aware and, and refocus our attention on some of just the ethical pieces of songs that we sing. Because too many of us, our idea of singing is really this one-on-one -on -one dimensional, I'm in love with God, and we're tight, and he's great, and you just sing with that's the focus of your song. But that's, that, that worship is really un- uh, not only unimaginable, it was just never really seen. You just don't get that sense. Then you think some of the early Christians, they had a problem with maybe singing songs that were a little bit too focused on uh, you know, how certain people should act and behave, but another deal. I want to talk to you about uh, expression and introversion. You know, more and more people call themselves introverts today. Uh, probably because what that actually means is we are uh, more individualistic than ever before, and not actually necessarily more inter, uh, introverted. But let me say two things about that. Number one, that just creates more opportunities for us to really uh, be weak in the power of the Spirit, to help overcome our inability to feel comfortable around other people talking about stuff. That's all that is. This is our new opportunity to, through our introversion, be used by the Spirit in our weakness. I agree. I, I do think more people are introverted today, and I, I don't think it's because people are just deciding they're introverted. It's just a process of Western civilization. As people become more individualistic and more competitive, they're going to have fewer and fewer friends. As they become more relative in their thinking and become more uh, sort of everything that's important to me is experiential, they don't need people because they got themselves. It, it's, of course, a recipe for absolute dev you know, devastation and depression, but also uh, it, uh, it creates this sense of introversion, which I don't think is always a bad thing or a good thing. But we are more introverted, and so that requires, I think, uh, us to be really careful that we don't accept just introverted ways of worship. And the same for people who are expressive. Uh, if you're just super expressive, and every morning you come and you're expressive, what are you really doing in the service of, you know, the spirit working through your weakness? What does it look like for an expressive person to calm yourself down a little bit uh, and, you know, maybe look to someone else near you to give them a word. You're so caught up in your own, I don't know, dance recital that you've forgotten that there are other people around you that you're like slapping with your hands, you know? <laughs> or you're making a visitor extremely uncomfortable because 
It's their first time, and here you are, and they thought, oh my gosh, I didn't realize this is what I was getting myself into. So, you know, there are ways for us to really think through that uh, in allowing the Spirit to really work for the common good. And I say that in jest, but sometimes expressive people encourage us all to be more expressive. And that, that's a very even beneficial thing, particularly in a day and age where we're not very expressive. When some people can start nudging you and do a little movement and, you know, we can do the white people shuffle, the, you know, the, you know, the <laughs> extent of our dancing, you know, really good stuff, you know, get moving, yeah. I'm just saying, that's, that's what we do. Um, the last one, and I think this is going to be no surprise, and I think it's probably the most exciting for many of you coming from, you know, the culture of Denton, is we, we really need to be creative. Uh, and creative not in, 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 in for the end of trying to impress or show. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Many of us need to just be impressed with that someone is choosing to do something creative in their life where we don't do a lot of that anymore. We critique, we accept creation but we don't do a whole lot of trying to just like, it's kind of at a low level creating and or bringing in things that are creative to kind of show with each other, which is why we have that list back there. Um, as Grant, I think, you know, mentioned and has been thinking about in our worship, we ought not just have opportunities for people to speak because speaking is one form of, you know, sharing with each other. We ought to really be excited about in our series, bringing things to show people, whether that's artwork or poetry or a psalm or whatever else, and being able to explain uh, how those things are significant. I think it's even better when it's not just something that's individually exciting to us, but it's a challenge to the community, or there's a group of us who are interested in something that we can kind of present. Um, those things, I think, always enliven people's sense of how the gospel is much bigger than just some words and some songs, but it actually plays out into our life uh, as we go about, and that there's plenty of ways to worship. Most of us just need to know how to worship throughout the week because we don't know how. Worship has come to mean pretty much anything. And so we just sort of go throughout our week and are like, oh, I don't know about the leaves falling, that must be worship. <laughs> um, so, you know, so no, probably actually not, but. Um, we, we need new things, new things that are just common and creative ways of learning how to engage our faculties throughout the week to be able to just worship God. Uh, and we need to present those and experiment with them, I think, here. Um, you know, and uh, of course, this is very, very challenging in our day and age where we have so much at our fingertips. I, I know I was kind of speaking about this in jest earlier, but if you were living 120 years ago, guys, the church service was a very interactive entertaining if we can say uh community gathering now we've got a million things that hold our attention in a million different places and so church can seem incredibly dry and unimaginative well let that's your fault it's not my fault i spend lots of time each week trying to think about how to do things and then it's difficult but as a church, if we're going to reimagine how church should reflect some of our values and our thinking, uh, we've got to decide that and then have contributions. And some of them are going to be really strange, which is like the story of Pentecostalism in the last hundred years. But that's okay, so long as they fit somewhere in the orthodoxy of, you know, well, we can have leeway with doing this and that. But being able to re-envision these things in our worship experience, it's just high time, guys. I don't know about you, but I've long been tired with just coming to worship service, singing four songs, listening to some guy drone on about whatever, and then going home as if that's all that the Spirit's going to do in a week when we gather. Uh, so we've got to reimagine this. And I have some ideas, but they're not necessarily great ideas. And I don't think that's my role as your, you know, your minister to come up with really great ways that we ought to all worship. That's the body's role. And if you guys want to keep coming each week and singing and then being done and do our real ministry throughout the week, I'm okay with that way of thinking. I mean, after all, it's an hour and 15 minutes, and it's just one more way we get to hang out with each other. But if you want to make this a meaningful time, just like our small groups are meaningful, just like our pizza theologies are meaningful, we've got to collectively decide how we ought to go about doing that and probably experiment for years and still be pretty bad at it. And that's going to be cool. we got plenty of time, you know? Um, so, holistic 
being that we uh, uh, you know, have a sense of experience and emotion, and people can be people here, aware, particularly aware of uh, how the Spirit is working among us for the corporate good uh, in terms of ethics in the one another passages, and then creative. Let's be creative, ways of looking and relooking uh, at things that, uh, that really catch our attention, stick with us, stay with us, uh, and that are expression of who we are in our generation and in our understanding of who God is. Um, I think those are ways that, again, that the Spirit can really work and, and, uh, and do what he does. Because the goal is never that we come here and it's like, oh, that was awesome, uh, you know, simply because we like the experience, but that we really feel like we've come away with some sense of the Spirit's moving. We're questioning it, we're discerning it. Um, but the spirit was really moving. And, you know, people talk about that a lot. The spirit was really moving this morning. But unfortunately, what they mean is that everyone was like singing in rhythm and no one was you know, clapping off key. Um, and uh, and, uh, and the, the emotion and feeling of it was just there. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's one way the spirit can really move is to get us all kind of on the same page with one voice. But probably there are a lot of other ways. Uh, and uh, we may even walk away from a service having it, it was boring or whatever else, the Spirit was still moving. So I'll redefine how we think about that. I'm going to say you can take the bread and uh, dip it in the, uh, the juice, and then we'll come back together, and uh, Austin will lead us through some songs uh, with no projector. So it'll be kind of a, a mystery if you don't know the lyrics, which maybe just gives you a chance to listen. That'd be great. Uh, Lord God, thank you for uh, your gift to us of uh, sending the Spirit to be with us in our corporate times. As rationalistic and intellectual and um, skeptical as we are, it's really just hard to even believe that, to understand it, to want to uh, be aware of it. And yet we have this deep need to feel um, your presence and uh, something beyond just us happening. So we really invite you to teach and train us in a way that uh, works with your agenda here and what you're doing in our church and in our community. Uh, speak through um, each one of us, uh, no matter how new or how old we are in the church, uh, to gift us and to remind us of how good and great you are. That we would be a welcoming place, a place for both Christians and non-Christians to come and experience your goodness for people who are pursuing you, uh, and people who are just here to get physical needs met, whatever it is that we clearly, and that we would understand it, and that we could discern. And, uh, we love you, and uh, we just uh, thank you for bringing us together like this. It's such a treat and, uh, and a reward. Uh, help us not to waste uh, what you've done here. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.